This morning we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 8, uh, 26 through 40. It's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. If you don't know me, my name is Donnie Clinton. I'm the director of student ministries at Sycamore. And in September, we pause our regular sermon series so we can go through the church's values. The values being live, grow, thrive, and go. These were shaped through the collective prayer and leadership discussions of our elders and staff. And today, we're talking about the value go. Previously, we've talked about uh, living, which is receiving the gospel together. As a community, we hear and receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We talked about growing, uh, which is treasuring the gospel, learning to grow in your love of God's word. Once we've received the gospel and live, we grow in the gospel and learn to deeply treasure it. Last week, we talked about thrive, which means walking in the gospel with joy, confident joy. Upon receiving and growing in the gospel, we thrive by walking in the gospel with confident joy. And today the focus is on go, and it's our last of the series. And this, and this there's a book that accompanies this called God Shines Forth, which is by David Hames and Michael Reeves. You can see it in the bottom corner. And this book argues that effective evangelism stems from being captivated by Jesus' glory. That effective evangelism stems from being captivated by the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. And it suggests that evangelism fatigue rises out of not fully seeing the beauty and glory of Jesus. Truly beholding him empowers us to share the gospel, reservations aside. John Stott famously said that if your heart has been captured by the gospel, then you will find a way to share it. If your heart has been captured by the gospel, you will find a way to share it. But what about the reality? <laughs> if you are anything like me, then you know that evangelism is challenging. It just is. Um, gospel tracks, that's one way some people prefer to do evangelism, focus on vocalizing the gospel and using scripture, but, and it's good that it puts the gospel in people's faith, but it doesn't demonstrate the relational aspect of evangelism that I think is like indelible to what true evangelism is. And there's a young, there's a, <laughs> to a theory that maybe some people my age might go by called lifestyle evangelism. It's where they would hope that their good attitude and their, um, they go to church on Sundays and that eventually the people around you would see, hey, you must be a Christian. And then that person would ask you, hey, tell me why you're so different. Tell me what about you. And then we would hope, well, it's because I'm a Christian and then I can share the gospel. Now this is fine. It really does emphasize the relational aspect of it, but the weird thing it does, it puts the impetus for sharing the gospel on the non-believer. Like they have to come to you and ask for it. And that's odd. Go finds the middle ground. While both gospel tracts and lifestyle evangelism have good merit, going honors the middle. And we can define go like this. Going is sharing the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel in our actions and our words. Going is sharing the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel in our actions and our words. Again, our text is Acts 8, verses 26 through 40, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And as we look at this section this morning, we'll see 
three different aspects of what it means to go. First, we're going to see that going is spirit-led. Going is spirit-led. Second, we'll see that going depends on God's word. Going depends on God's word. And then finally, we'll see that Jesus Christ is the center of going. Going is centered on Jesus Christ. We'll read the scripture for our first point and then we'll pray. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Pray with me. Lord, we need your spirit to enlighten this gospel message to us. I pray that we would see that we are empowered by you to go, not by any power of our own, and that we need you and your strength in order to effectively go at all. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in verses 26 through 29, I think we see two important things. First is that going is spirit-led, and the second is that God employs his people to go. God uses you and I to go. So the going is spirit-led. In this text, an angel tells Philip to go to a specific location, and the Holy Spirit guides him, Philip, to join a stranger in his chariot. Here, Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch studying Isaiah 53, which is a messianic uh, chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's looking forward to a savior, someone who would come and redeem the people of their sins. This event is clearly orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. It's clearly orchestrated by divine means. An angel tells Philip to go. The Holy Spirit says, hey, Philip, go over to the chariot. And there we find this opportunity for Philip to share the gospel uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch. We can't get around the fact that going is spirit-led. Actually, the book of Acts starts with just that. Acts 1.8 says, "Um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we're learning here is that in order for you to go effectively, the Holy Spirit must work in you. That going is a Holy Spirit-empowered thing that gives us strength and courage to share the gospel all over the world. That's what Acts 1.8 says. That means in your workplace. That means in your classroom, students, you also have an opportunity to share the gospel with your classmates. And the adults who are in class too, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with people who may not know him. But the Holy Spirit divinely orchestrates these events so you can share this gospel message with people, which we'll get to in our final point. Now that's a huge task, and it scares me to think about that. Evangelism makes me nervous. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid that people will not respond. Somehow, if I tell this stranger about the gospel, then, and and they don't receive it, does that mean that I did a bad job? (laughs) Does that mean that I am the failure here? 
No, because, because going is in the faithfulness of going, not in the result of having gone. You go in faithfulness, not expecting that God, like expecting that God might work, but not needing the fruit to know that God is working. God, the Holy Spirit, isn't shy about the fact that he uses sinful humans to bring the work of the gospel to a broken world. Going is spirit-led, and God chooses his people to do it. Now, the Apostle Philip, we don't have a lot of things about him concerning his failures as much as we do Peter, because Peter was just bad. He cut off a guy's ear. Like, he denied Jesus, like, in, like, in the home stretch. It was real bad. But we do have some things about Philip that, like, lead us to believe, like, wow, God is really using broken, sinful humans to, to do his work. In the book of, of John 14, Philip um, had this limited understanding of who Jesus was. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us which is a big thing, right? If you show me God, then I'll settle for this whole gospel thing. That's a big, that's a big thing to ask. And then, and then Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And this exchange suggests that Philip, like the other disciples, struggled to fully comprehend the nature of Jesus and his relationship with uh, God. Philip had a limited understanding. He was a broken and frail human just like you and me. He also had doubt that God would provide, which you and I struggle with all the time. In John 6, when Jesus asked Philip where they could uh, get enough bread to feed a crowd, Philip expresses doubt about the ability to provide, stating that over even 200 denarii would not be enough for this crowd. And this instance shows the, the limited faith that Philip has. This instance demonstrates that he is a broken and finite and, and small person, but God still chose to use him in Acts 8. We could also consider Peter and all of the things, the myriad of problems that he had. He just fell short again and again and again. But you and I typically disqualify ourselves before we even get to share. You, you, you have this perception of your shortcomings and anxiety and fear. But our text is showing us that you are not disqualified from sharing the gospel because you're human. In fact, God chose to give the ministry of reconciliation to his people. Peter and Philip were humans. You and I are humans. The New Testament portrays humans as real people with strengths and weaknesses who grew in their faith and understanding as they walked with Jesus. Your human limitations, while they might be a discouragement to you, are not discouraging to God. Jesus is not discouraged by you because you're human. In fact, it compels him towards you. It compels him to love you. You are not so broken and so afraid and so unknowledgeable that the Holy Spirit can't use you to go to people. And, but I, I believe that lie all the time. I used to work in a coffee shop in St. Louis while I was in seminary, and there was this uh, mother and son who came in uh, every week, a few times a week even, and I got to know them very well. We had this relationship with one another, and I knew that she always ordered a mocha, and I knew that he always got a Sprite, the son, and he also got a scone or a cookie. I, I always knew that. I could try and have it ready for when they would come in. Well, I was, of course, attending church at that time. I am a Christian, and Easter was, was rolling around. And I, and I felt strongly that I need to invite someone. <laughs> I need to invite someone 
to Easter because if I really believe this message that Jesus Christ is the savior of the whole world, then I'm gonna tell somebody about it. I'm gonna expect that the Holy Spirit will work like he says he will. But the moment came, they were, they were sitting at their table, I was dropping off their scone and their Sprite and their mocha, and in that moment I was overcome with fear. I was very, very anxious. And so I took a second, I walked away behind the counter and just prayed for one second. I said, Lord, Holy Spirit, please help me. Give me peace. And in that moment I felt some semblance of peace and I had the courage empowered by the Holy Spirit, not of my own, to say, hey, Easter is coming up at my church and I would love for you to attend. And in that moment, I, I, I thought that they were gonna say no. I was actually disqualifying them <laughs> from the gospel before I even had the chance to tell them about it because I was disqualifying myself. It was, a, it was just a crazy situation. But when I asked the mom and the son to come, her face lit up. She said that no one ever invites her to anything and that she was looking for a community even though she had been in St. Louis for years and years and years. Well, Easter morning rolls around and I can be skeptical of people. Maybe they won't come. Maybe they were just being nice to me. Maybe I'll never make her a mocha again because she's gonna like, stay away from this guy who's a Christian. But the service time rolled around and they arrived as one of the first families. And I was so deeply encouraged that the Holy Spirit saw fit to use me, a broken, sinful human, to go with the gospel, to share it with somebody. Since then, of course, I don't go to that church anymore, but I've been keeping up with updates about the family, and they're full in. They're full-bore members of this little church. The father plays in the worship band. The mother is involved in women's ministry, and the son gave his life to Christ. He dedicated his life. He was baptized into the Lord. The Holy Spirit saw fit to use a humble, broken person to make his home in, in three new believers. Brother and sister, you are not disqualified you do not need to disqualify yourself from this task because God chose you and was pleased to choose you by the Holy Spirit to give the gospel. That's what it says in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit fell and then they could go. Now the Holy Spirit empowers you in strength to go to the ends of the earth to give this gospel away to people in your workplace, in your classrooms, um, who you run into at coffee shops, that the Holy Spirit is the one working in you. You do not have to be worried about perfection. Just be faithful. Be faithful because the Holy Spirit is in you. But be faithful because that is what God has promised to you in his word. And that brings us to our second point. Going is dependent on God's word. Read 30 through 34 with me. So Philip ran and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And there are two things here also that we need to see. One is that God's word is called an evangelical means of grace. 
evangelical means of grace. That's a very reformed Presbyterian thing. Just is very important. And the second thing we learn is that scripture is a real benefit to us, to our humanity. First, God's word is an evangelical means of grace. In the reformed tradition, which is what Sycamore is, God's word falls under something called, G, called Jesus's ordinances. And there's a group of them called the ordinary means of grace, which are God's word, the sacraments, and prayer. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, when you're talking about an ordinary means of grace, it says that God's word, especially when it is preached, is a special means of evangelical grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the word of God is made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, I understand, confusing stuff. All that means is that for those who are saved, God's word communicates the benefits of their salvation. God has ordained his Bible, the Bible you have in your hands, to be the thing that communicates to you all the benefits of salvation in Jesus Christ. His word, his Bible, that, that's what God's word does. And for the lost person, the one who doesn't have saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it, it says that the Holy Spirit makes the reading and preaching of God's word a convincing um, means by which the sinner is converted to follow Jesus. That means that if, if you're not a Christian or, don't, or know somebody who's not a Christian, God has said, my word is the thing by which I will use to convert the lost. So it really matters that Isaiah is being read here in Acts 8. It matters that Christians who want to evangelize know, know God's word thoroughly. The Spirit led this man to this text and, and led Philip to this moment so he could talk about Isaiah 53. And I, and I, and I say all that to say, do you, do you know that God's word is meant to give you a fuller realization of the benefits you have because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that God's word is meant to assure you that you are saved, to comfort you when you are broken, to give you solace when things are going crazy? to be your rock when, when life feels like a big storm, that God's word is intended for this, all, is all available to you. All of the comfort, joy, solace, peace, assurance you need is readily available to you in God's word. And oftentimes I'm guilty of treating the Bible like some kind of thing on a Christian checklist. I read it to say that I've read it. And I, and I believe that's maybe how a lot of us are. We, we read it because we feel guilty that we haven't read it, but we don't treat it as the way by which God communicates all the blessings we have in Jesus. We just don't do that. But brother and sister, God's word does that by the power of the Holy Spirit. In order for you to go and go effectively, you need God's word. I need God's word. I need to imbibe it and, and dwell on it. You are a more effective evangelist if you bathe yourself in God's word because God's word is how we comprehend the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. God has committed his will to written down scripture. It is in the preached word, it is in the Bible that you come to really, really know Jesus. That is where you see his glory. 
That is where you, you hear about his love. That is where you hear about the assurance available to you. And if you're not reading scripture, these things are just faint memories as opposed to an ever-present reminder that God wants to use to assure you that he loves you and he cares for you. And it's not just a spiritual reality. Like though it affects our hearts and our spirits, God's word is actually meant to be a benefit to our physical, real human bodies. Read Psalm 19, seven through eight with me. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Did you hear all of the things that God's word does for his people? If it's truly, truly valued. Let me ask you, do you feel like your soul needs to be revived sometimes? I think so. I know you've gotten hard news before. I know that things hurt and that life is hard and that sin breaks us and every day I'm in need of revival. Well, that's available in God's world, God's word. Are you weary from the world and all of its brokenness? I know I am. Do you crave wisdom? Do you want to know how to better live a life that pleases God? That's available in his word. Do you know that God rejoices over you? Because that's what scripture says. That God looks to you, his children, and rejoices and sings over them. I need these reminders every day, and oftentimes I look for sure satisfaction in things that aren't the Bible. I drink from wells of... (laughs) of being important to people, of uh, maybe even being the cool youth director. I, I value so much my image that I think it's who I am. But the Bible says the only way that you will ever be revived, that you will ever be enlightened, that you will ever truly be satisfied in your spiritual thirst is by drinking in God's word. That's what Jesus says in John 6. Those who, who, those who thirst and come to me, they'll be saved. Friends, you and I typically, we we find ourselves in spiritual deserts, similar maybe to the one in this text. But look and see that God's word is a well in the desert that weary sinners must drink from in order to feel the love and care of God in Christ. And if we neglect God's word and don't see it as central to giving the gospel, we fail ourselves and fail the people God is calling us to. It is most important in God's word that we see Christ on every page because the beauty you see in Jesus, the glory you see in Jesus, that will be the thing that compels you to give him away. Remember what John Stott said, if your heart has been truly captivated by the gospel, it will find a way to give it away. The Bible is one unified story of God's redemption of lost sinners. It's where we find Jesus Christ. And if we're not in the habit of beholding Jesus Christ in the Bible, we can hardly be in the habit of giving him away. We must see that our going efforts as something that points to Jesus. Our going points to the beauty that we see in Jesus. Just like Philip in this story when he opens his mouth. And that brings us to our final point. Going is centered on Jesus Christ. 
Read verses 35 through 40 with me. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Philip baptized the eunuch. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. It's, it's hard not to note that Philip opened his mouth. Yes, the, the angel plopped him in the desert, and the Holy Spirit told him to go to the chariot, but like a friend, he, he sat by him. This is lifestyle, evangelism, I guess. He sat by him and allowed the eunuch to read the scripture and to ask these questions about it. But, but then when the person asked, he opened his mouth and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now you, you might be thinking, Donnie, the eunuch asked about the good news. Why can't I wait around for my friend to ask me about the good news? Well, that's a, that's a good question. It's because Philip was sent for the mission of sharing but you and I hide behind our anxiety. <laughs> you and I hide behind our frailty. I'm, I'm not saying it's, you shouldn't be prayerful and you shouldn't build relationships. I am not saying any of that. I am saying it's often the case that we put those things in front of actually sharing the gospel, that we sometimes wait for the perfect moment in order to point people to the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes, if it's the case for me, that's done in anxiety. That's done in fear. That's done and a lack of trust that God's word will not go out and accomplish what it sets out to do. Christians are like holding dynamite, but they never expect it to explode. Philip pointed the man to, Philip pointed the man to Jesus with his words and actions. This is what it means to go. The eunuch, compelled by Philip's explanation, demonstrates the response God, of God's people once they have Jesus. There, there must have been a time in between Philip talking about the scriptures and the baptism. Um, and he must have explained that those who are in Christ are part of this body, are baptized to show that they are part of the community of believers. Baptism is such a Jesus-centered thing. It's a sacrament that he instituted to show us that we are adopted, that our resurrection is in Christ, that we are part of God's visible church. That is why we baptize. That is why people should be baptized. And then once he identified with Jesus and, and knew that this man died for our transgressions and he was on the cross for our sins, he didn't pout. He went away rejoicing. The man went on his way rejoicing when he learned about Jesus. This man could only learn, be baptized, and rejoice because Jesus came to him. You see, the only reason that you and I go isn't because we're strong or because I have such a great working knowledge of Scripture or I have memorized a hundred Bible verses. That is, not that is not why we go. Those are good. That's not why. We go into our workplaces, into family reunions, into classrooms, everywhere, all the ends of the earth, because Jesus came to us. The book of Philippians 2 said that he stepped down from heaven, like laying aside the benefits that he had therein in order to pursue lost sheep. We go because our Lord went. 
We go because he came to find his lost sheep. We go because it demonstrates a deep love for lost people. It demonstrates what Christ has done for us, that in coming here and in sympathizing with us in our human weakness, we have gained a high priest who knows everything about us and will always care for us, who will never throw us away. That's what John 6 says. We go because he's gone. We go by the Spirit, depending on God's word, pointing to the fact that Christ has accomplished salvation. In his perfect life, death and resurrection, we see a man who laid aside so many benefits that we might be his. And in seeing this, we lay aside whatever we believe we're entitled to. We lay aside fear and anxiety, empowered by the Holy Spirit, going to the lost people of this world because Christ has come to us and made us his family. Amen? Pray with me. Lord, we are sinful and human. We are broken and small. But you have chosen us. You have chosen us to go. Lord, empower us by the Spirit. Help us see that it's not any of my work. Lord, give us a deep love for Scripture that we might pray over it and know more about it and give it away freely. And Lord, help us behold the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ more and more that we may be more effective at pointing to him every day. Lord, for those of us who know lost people, as we all do, give us wisdom to share the gospel that they might find their joy in the God, Jesus Christ, who came down and pursued us. We pray all this on the merit of Jesus Christ. Amen.